Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EU VC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. This is the last of a four-episode-long special on the MENA region here at the European VC. This special series of episodes focuses on everything MENA VC, bridging the gap with its European counterparts. We intend to shed light on the ins and outs of venture in the MENA region and promote collaboration between these two beautiful regions, Europe and MENA. For this special series of episodes, we welcome our dear friend and special co-host, Mustafa Gadot. And as our guest, we welcome Sharif, Chief Executive Officer of the Dubai Future District Fund, the evergreen venture capital fund of funds of Dubai, anchored by the Dubai International Finance Center and the Dubai Future Foundation, with an initial 1 billion dirham in committed capital. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving it a review and following us on LinkedIn. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know. Sharif, welcome to the show. It is so great having you with us here at the European VC. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we start, I want us to just to take the time to hear a bit more about you. We really want to know more about your journey. I appreciate you guys having me and allowing me to tell my story, but also just to have a dialogue about how the ecosystem in the region is evolving. I think it's, for me, it's a passion project. Uh, we're all on a collective mission to transform this emerging market among you know the movement happening all around the world to transform all emerging markets to healthy ecosystems. So my background started in Los Angeles. I was born there uh, to both my parents are Egyptian, kind of what they call like a multicultural kid, um, but never really lived in the Middle East. So I was pretty disconnected from the Middle East uh, most of my life, except for the occasional summer trip to, to get to know your culture kind of trip, but definitely felt on the, you know more on the outside as an American. Graduated with a degree in neuroscience, just because that's what immigrant parents you know, want you to do is become a doctor or a lawyer. And it was in school or even slightly before that, that I started to have an entrepreneurial bug. And, and I started my first couple startups in the mid-90s in Los Angeles, which was not you know the epicenter of startups. It was five, six-hour drive up north. Uh, but we were pretty stubborn. And we decided that we wanted to start our startups in L.A., and only later did we realize that that was just actually very faulty thinking that the network effects of Silicon Valley were very powerful. And unlike today, it was the really only good place to start a startup. I mean, today, you can start a startup anywhere in the world. And, and that's part of the work that we're all doing, right, is to continue to push that forward. I started my first startups in the Web 1.0 uh, era. And so Web 1.0 was about setting up the infrastructure of the Internet. So it's search engines, it's portals, it's a lot of directories and those kinds of things. And then we moved on to Web 2.0 after the 2000 crash, which started to be, you know, two entrepreneurs in a garage creating an app, mostly along the themes of social, local, mobile, solo mo, they called it. It was doable at the time to start a new offering, a new service, a new product, just two tinkerers in a garage. After 10 or 15 years of that, we started to move into, you know, what I call the Web 3.0 phase, or Steve Case had called that, which was about layering on techification of, of incumbent industries, large incumbent industries like finance, uh, 
education, healthcare. Now, those industries, if you remember the initial rhetoric in fintech, for example, it was about disrupting the banks. We're going to kill the banks. But quickly, that rhetoric changed to we're partnering with the banks, we're going to work with the banks, we're licensing from the banks. Because you realize that in those incumbent uh, large industries, two guys in a garage are just not going to cut it. You cannot penetrate the whole banking system from the outside. It just doesn't work that way. We're in the middle of, I think, that phase for us as technologists. And it's certainly the area of interest, core focus as an investor today is how are we going to take those incumbent industries, whether it's in uh, energy or logistics or manufacturing, education, healthcare, all of those things still have not nearly been disrupted as much as, you know, technology is available uh, to empower them. So I was doing startups throughout the later side of the 90s, all the way up until about 2009, actually 2010. Uh, where had, I had already moved up to the Bay Area by then. I joined a company called AdMob, which is a mobile ad network. What we noticed when we launched AdMob is that the rest of the world was adopting mobile phones as their primary computing device, whereas mature countries really thought of, thought of that as an afterthought. You know, it's like, I use it to make phone calls, but that's it. Whereas our traffic at AdMob in the first year spiked in Indonesia, South Africa, and India, not in the U.S. where we were. And we started to wonder why that was. And it was because of the leapfrogging that emerging markets do when it comes to technology or any kind of adoption. They skipped personal computers, too expensive, too cumbersome, right? And went straight to phones and they would check, you know, anything from sports news, weather, horoscopes, whatever they, you know, could get access to on the web 2.0 devices. In the middle of AdMob's first few years, Apple came out with the iPhone and subsequently came out with the App Store which had apps in it. And AdMob was the first to place ads in those apps and do something which everybody uses today, which is app download tracking. So when you're promoting your app, you want to be promoting it, first of all, to people on the same medium. So you don't want to promote an app on desktop. It's less effective. It costs a lot more for acquisition. And you need to have attribution and measurement of your campaign. So we're uh, pioneers in that area. And that led us to be the number one ad network for mobile at the time. Uh, it was backed by Sequoia and Excel and a few others. And then within the blink of an eye, uh, we were acquired by Google uh, for $750 million plus an earnout. And the value of, of AdMob almost immediately after moving into Google, which was about nine months later because the FCC was going through an antitrust review, the value of AdMob technically would have been around $2 billion already because the market had heard of the acquisition. We started getting large customers who would never have touched a startup before all of a sudden feeling comfortable to use us. And then I went through a very important, I think, experiential lesson in my career, which is working at big tech, which was super different from working at startups. At the time, it was 65,000 people at Google. Now they're way over 150,000, I believe. But it was a large organization, which I had no experience in. And my job was to, to penetrate mobile within the North America sales team. So it's about 1,200 people at the time. Uh, we were about five salespeople in mobile. We weren't direct sales. We were what's called sales solutions. So we would help every quarter the sales team with the narrative on how to sell the, the mobile products to their clients and go talk to their clients. Just to give you an example of the sheer scale of what mobile was going through at the time, I had a quota of $250 million my first year at Google, almost double AdMob's entire revenue of the year before when we were acquired. And then it went to a billion dollars the second year, uh, $4 billion, and then $16 billion. So within four years, it just kept doubling or quadrupling. So I learned a lot. Um, fast forwarding through those four or five years, I was focused on ads. It, it's, my scope went from just mobile to all performance ads. So included search, which is all is considered performance, 
the performance side of our display ads on the Google Display Network, on desktop and mobile, and new products that were coming out on performance video ads. So even YouTube had just started to monetize, and video is always considered brand advertising, but Google came out with app download ads in YouTube or interstitials that were very performance-driven. Those were you know, the four different types of performance ads we would focus on, so mobile search, display, and video. After you know, seven-plus years in ads, I kind of got tired of doing ads and I wanted to do something different. So the last two years at Google, I moved over to our partnerships organization. We're, we're piloting a new program for Google called Project Sandhill. Project Sandhill still exists today, even though I, I left years ago. And that program was meant to get Google back in touch with the early startup scene. So Google was past its 15th birthday by then, no longer really a startup at all. If we weren't paying attention, we were missing all the newer up-and-coming startups that were emerging. And this program was meant to partner with the VCs, first of all, and then have quarterly business reviews on their portfolio and, and select the high-growth startups in their portfolio to offer what we call the One Google Partner Management, which was novel at Google because we have 45 different disparate organizations, nobody really talking to each other. And believe it or not, we didn't have a single CRM across Google. There were thousands of instances of CRMs in Google. It was a very enterprising you know, mentality. Everyone do it their own way which was great, but helped us move fast, but didn't help us do our outward mantra, which was organize the world's information. We did it externally very well for the users. Mm -hmm. But internally, if you called me and said, I'm locked out of my Gmail, I have no idea how to help you. I don't even know who the account manager would be for you. Uh, Even our large clients would call us and say, I have a problem with the Play Store or DoubleClick or this and that. Who am I supposed to even go to internally? Part of the one Google partner management was we do that for startups to kind of white glove service them. It was very effective because we can get them into betas. We can help uh, get certain teams to pay attention to these high potential startups before the mass market knew that they were high potential startups. So that was very successful. We launched, me and another person covered Silicon Valley ADCs. Then we ended up hiring somebody in New York and then Israel, India, and China. We had a representative in each. I think now the team is much bigger, but it was a fun project. I did that for two years. I had a lot of paternity leave for uh, the two children I had while I was at Google. And I used that paternity leave to go mentor around the world to different startup events just to kind of, for my own satisfaction, to be involved and to give back. And through that, I ended up joining a nonprofit in the Bay Area called TechWadi that ended up connecting me with the Middle East because it was this Middle East diaspora network. I came out to my first roadshow with Google for Entrepreneurs and TechWadi. They called me and they said, hey, token Middle Eastern guy, you you know something about startups. Why don't you come with us on this roadshow? I was like, all right, sounds good. Uh, we did a two-week roadshow across Amman, Beirut, Cairo, Dubai, what they call ABCD. And you know, aside from the sea, which is where my parents are from, I'd never really been to any of these countries. I actually had never been to Egypt in the capacity of an adult in business, right? I've only gone as a kid in the summer and go to the beach. So it was mind-blowing. I mean, so awe-inspiring to find entrepreneurs, founders in each of these places talking the same talk we talk. You know, they read the same magazine or articles on TechCrunch. They read, you know, the same language. And the, the only difference was they were not in a supportive environment and their challenges were astronomical. And they would say things to me like, oh my God, what a relief to talk to you. You understand what we're doing. And to me, it was like, what do you mean? Like, doesn't anyone understand? Like, it's so easy to get it. But there was a cultural mind shift that just wasn't there. And even though we had just started to have VCs in the region around that time, and I'm talking, this is like 2014, 2015 timeframe, there were VCs, but they were so far and few between, and maybe they had you know certain backgrounds that they came from. So most of the VCs, I'd say in emerging markets, 
typically come from more of a finance or business or consulting background, don't necessarily come as operators or big tech or engineering background into VC, which is, I think, the, the majority of what we see in the U.S. markets. So there is a lack of relatability and lack of credibility uh, when you're speaking to founders. So I think I had that advantage. And what dawned on me during that time was that for 15 minutes that you spend with any of these founders, it actually is trajectory changing for them. It was things that were pent up for a year that they didn't know who to talk to, who to ask. You, all you had to do is give comfort. It wasn't a lot, right? You really weren't adding that much. From my perspective, I wasn't adding that much. From theirs, they were very grateful. And I took that to heart. So there's something that dawned on me at that time, which was there's a innate selfishness in thinking you haven't made it in the eyes of people who think you have. It's counterintuitive, I know. So take a moment. But yeah. it took me a while. Am I selfish for thinking I add value to them? Or am I selfish to thinking I'm not, I haven't made it because I don't, nobody thinks they've made it, right? Everybody's still chasing, yeah. still climbing a ladder. And even if you reached it, you're going to have another ladder you want to get to. But if you think that you haven't made it in the eyes of somebody behind you in the curve, yeah. there's selfishness in that. So even if you're yeah. 21 years old, you have something to share to that 18-year-old. And it's not about age, right? It's about life progress. To somebody else, you're their hero. So you better mm -hmm. acknowledge that. And that made me fall into mentorship like crazy. I joined Tequeri as a mentor, then became the head mentor, then became the chairman. And I was the third chairman of the organization. And, and we really tried to take the direction of the organization instead of being an Arab diaspora thing for Silicon Valley to being a bridging between MENA and Silicon Valley. We did a lot of programs in both directions. We brought a lot of delegations from MENA to uh, Silicon Valley, took them on tech tours and all that. And then we also would take delegations of mentors from Silicon Valley, from Google, from Dropbox, from Stanford, from MIT, from wherever, and bring them out to the region to coach people out here. And we wanted more cross-pollination because with cross-pollination, you get crossing of experiences, of know-how, best practices, of standards. And the ecosystem at the time, and I'd argue probably still is, the Wild West out here the Wild East, I guess you'd say. And we weren't following best practices. We weren't following standards. You can see it from afar. And this happens a lot, I think, with the Dunning-Kruger kind of effect. Oh, I see the startup ecosystem. Let's do it. But the interworkings, the history, the timeline, how it got to where it is and why we use certain jurisdictions for our holding companies, why we follow certain terms in our documentation, it's for a reason, right? And so without having that context, you can't just go in and jump in and start an ecosystem. So a lot of my first few years in the market here, traveling, mostly commuting here, was talking to the governments about policy changes, about how they can foster innovation, how they can be more supportive environments. It was fun. I mean, I'm not a policy guy at all, right? But we were the ones being called into these meetings with the World Bank, with every ministry in each of these countries, trying to get them to sort of just move the needle a little bit to be supportive of their local ecosystems and to help them. It quickly, the conversation moved from that. I had met a few VCs out here who had asked for me to join them part-time while I was still at Google. And one of them uh, was Dave McClure uh, from 500 Startups in Egypt at, at Ryza. And he said, we're actually launching the first MENA-focused fund from a U.S. firm. And why don't you come and join and, and help lead that? Long story short, I left Google September 2016, launched the fund called 500 Falcons in May 2017. From May until right when COVID hit in March 2020, we invested in 181 companies from that fund. Really did, those years were very formative for the region. We really kicked up investment activity by encouraging more checks faster, the right way, using the right instruments, and a lot of coaching and hand-holding on, on entity formation, 
corporate structuring, legal. I've learned so much about legal and everything that I never knew, you know, before and figured, you know, what are the right jurisdictions for these companies to place their holding companies, whether that's BVI, Cayman, Netherlands, uh, UK, Delaware, etc. And then, you know, some jurisdictions started to emerge here in the region, like ADGM and DIFC that were based on common law. So they, those became qualified jurisdictions for holding companies as well. A number of other things around why a jurisdiction works and another doesn't. I mean, it comes down to precedence in case law, number one. That's why we don't just use any state in the U.S. All of, all of them are fine. We use Delaware because of the case precedence. We wanted jurisdictions, or lawyers also want jurisdictions that recognize things that we use in the startup and VC world, like convertible notes, different classes of shares, ESOPs, yeah. etc. When you don't have those built into the law, you tend to have investors and lawyers crafting documents that are way more complex and longer and harder to understand than a simple document that is based on the existing law. Even after you know turning, a, let's say, a seed investment into a 100-page document to account for all of your parameters, the local law still won't recognize it because it just doesn't know those things. We've come a long way since then, but I, th- I still think that we have work to do on best practices and standards in the region, making sure that we're all using standardized terms, standardized documents, so that we don't corrupt the ecosystem. Because if we have, take advantage of startups too young or take too much equity, it ends up hurting all of us in the future. If an investor has a bad experience investing, they're probably not going to invest again. So the ramifications of doing things wrong are pretty massive. Some of the cracks that are happening now, right now because of the market downturn, yes, some of our startups are suffering in the region, right? Maybe they raised too much. Maybe they weren't operating prudently. Maybe a number of things. But these are the kinds of things that could potentially hurt all of us you know, in the, round, in, in the long term and vice versa. If companies succeed and do things the right way, it's going to encourage all boats to rise, right? Or it will assist all boats to rise. So that brings me to where I am today. I finished the 500 Falcons Fund right when COVID started, as I mentioned. I launched another fund called Plus VC with my old co-founder and team. I decided not to continue on with that firm because I saw a capital allocation issue in the region that was beyond the VCs, that was at the LP level. And we can dive into that a little bit as well. But it was that. It was also a combination of the type of fund I wanted to run next. So I wanted to run a multi-stage fund because you know all the, the best VCs in the world are multi-stage, meaning they can invest in a company at any stage they deem appropriate. It doesn't have to be limited to one stage. And the type of fund I was running before was pretty much a single-stage fund. It was a seed-stage fund. So we invested in all stages of seed, but then we tap out you know, pretty much at the next round. And so the reason I wanted to do a multi-stage fund is because I didn't have the ability to protect the interests of my founders in our portfolio or my interests as an investor. Because the next set of NVCs were all coming in at different terms, different things, different practices, different know-how, and they weren't really following sort of the culture and best practices that we knew about. So multi-stage fund allows you to protect yourself and your founders more because you can participate in those next rounds, even lead some of them, and make sure that you're, you have a say at the table. Plus VC is running you know, on its own now. I've left the firm, and I, uh, a year ago, a little over a year ago, I decided to join the Dubai government to launch its first initiative in venture, which is now the Dubai Future District Fund. It's leading up to what, Sharif? What's the Dubai Future District Fund? Perfect. I'll try to be concise, but just stop me if, if I drag on. The pretext here is that Dubai has been, for a number of reasons, the number one ecosystem hub in the region. That is despite putting up capital itself for funds or for startups directly in a big way. I mean, some things have happened here and there, so let's discount those for now. But in a concerted effort, this is the first sort of initiative, the Dubai Future District Fund, to really put a stake in the ground and say we're going to back funds and startups doing the hard work with capital. 
So they've done it with events, they've done it with initiatives, they've done it with having the best place to live, the best place to work, all the infrastructure safety regulation. They've done all of that. But from a capital perspective, this is the first big initiative like this. Second, Dubai has been number one every quarter in terms of number of deals and amount of magnitude of capital being deployed into venture, but without itself putting money up. So it is just people and funds are here, and that's where the deals happen. We're still, uh, as of the last MENA report I saw, we're still number one. But, you know, it's really our position to lose because everybody else is catching up pretty fast. You know, Saudi is, is doing a lot of great work uh, building their ecosystem and moving very fast in that direction and doing a lot of the right things. And there's a number of other initiatives from other Emirates and other countries also working very hard. Why is capital important? Is because at every level, from the LP level, GP level, and, and the founders level, capital availability is the first for me, at least, the first, uh, second entry point, let's say, founders are first. You need the talent to start the companies. Then you, they need capital to grow of the ecosystem flywheel. And without it, we starve our own companies. And, and you know, the next challenges they face are even harder than the capital challenge, which is getting customers. We don't necessarily have a mature private sector here that uh, is accustomed to investing in startups or even working with startups as you know customers. So it comes first as work with the startups as customers, perhaps invest in startups, perhaps acquire startups. So we need the private sector to get involved. Very similar to the 70s and 80s in the US, those very first startups, the percentage of acquisitions from, let's say, incumbent industry companies was high. It faded over time and we didn't need them anymore because the trend later on became that large startups buy small startups because they realized the power of M&A in expansion of technology, talent, and market share, which is why you buy a company. So it became ingrained in the practice of tech companies to buy tech companies. I think majority of tech companies today that go through acquisitions are by other tech companies. But we just don't have that yet here. It's still a very nascent environment. So the mandate of the fund is to simply add capital to the ecosystem through funds to support the work that the private VCs are doing and directly into startups. And I'll, I'll qualify that, why a government-based fund is doing both of these things. So number one, we are structured as an evergreen fund. So that in itself is unique, but it's the right structure for a government fund. Why should a government fund be beholden to the 10-year timelines that private VCs have? It is actually, as a fund manager, previous fund manager, it's a limitation. We have to have that limit because everybody wants to get paid out at some point. And the way startups uh, investment work is you don't get paid dividends or distributions like maybe another, other types of investments. You wait until exit. Right? And then the whole fund gets returned and then you split the difference. The 10-year timeline is there for a reason. It's a 7 to 10-year return window typically or 7 to 12 years if you add extensions. And you have to kind of keep that there. But then the complaint about venture capital to potential LPs, especially family offices or, or corporates or anything, is why would I invest in a 10-year blind pool investment that has a 10-year uh, lockup for my capital? And for good reason, of course, but in emerging markets, it's, it's a, you have to convince them that this is the right thing to do, given the high risk. Yeah. So one thing that as a government fund, we, we don't have to be beholden to those 10-year horizons. So we also don't have to have a selection bias in the kinds of investments we make. If you look at any private sector VC, typically they're looking for low-hanging fruit that is already a technology of today. Rarely are VCs doing what the dream is to do, which is invest in the future. Rarely do you see VCs really investing in the future. In mature markets, yes, there are some kinds of VCs that are deep tech VCs, patient capital VCs, we call it. They go into pharma, they go into energy, they go into hardware. But your typical VC is doing very low-hanging software-based yeah. kind of technology. 
a lot of times in the emerging market, that happens to also be business model cloning. So it's not that innovative. The innovation, with all due respect that I've learned in being in the market, is in the localization of that technology or business model. Yeah. It's not necessarily in the origination. You're guessing here if that you're not saying that it's a second tier type of innovation. It's not that it's not good or important or anything. It's just it's a different type of innovation from the frontier tech. That's right. It took me a while to appreciate that. It does make a market and economy move faster if you get these, you know, very efficient business models. If we call it Web 2, right, as an example. Why, yeah, why would you reinvent the wheel too, right? Yeah. And 90% of these services and products we're talking about are needed in these emerging markets because yeah. you don't have them. Let's say food delivery, e-commerce, media, yeah. anything, all the basics didn't exist. So, of course, you should go after those first. Those are lower hanging business models proven somewhere else. Now, the challenge comes down to localizing it. It might be why a Kareem was able to compete with an Uber and then get acquired by it. It might be why Souk.com was able to be acquired by Amazon instead of Amazon coming in and competing directly because understanding these local markets is not easy, especially when the infrastructure is not really there. So Souk, for example, in its early years created its own payment gateways. It created its own logistical services because there was no services. So yeah. there's still a lot of room for that kind of innovation. Yet we're very aware that for an innovative ecosystem to have the right talent pool, the right kind of growth, and the right future thinking, it needs to start to move towards more meaningful innovation, more meaningful technologies as well. So I would say by my rough estimates from 2015 to now, I've looked at it's approximately 10%, 15% of startups are doing new things or hard things, whereas 85%, maybe 90% are doing just business model cloning. So we have to kind of always take a look at how that's happening. Now, our fund, the Dubai Future District Fund, on one hand, as I mentioned, we'll be investing in funds. So we're focusing on three kinds of funds. One is the incumbent VCs who've already been investing in the region doing the job. Let's reward and support them. Those are most likely on their fund two, fund three, fund four by now, and we are supporting them. Second, we want to be supporting new and emerging fund managers, either a single GP, a micro fund, 10 million fund, a verticalized fund, different unique kinds of funds. Why? Because We think that adds plurality and optionality for founders, which is very important. When a founder is doing an ed tech seed stage company in Tunisia, they may not see 220 VCs operating in MENA as available capital to them because it certainly it's not. VCs have theses. Those theses are based on sector, stage, and geography typically. And there's restrictions. So in every country you look at, the capital availability on the bottom line is not equal to the top line reports by Magnet, for example. Yes, we've come a long way. Yes, there's more than 200 VCs investing in the region. About 25 to 30 of those are international VCs investing in the region, which is a very positive sign. However, you know they all have different theses. So they may be a fit for your particular startup, and they may not. So we want to add more plurality and optionality. Even if there were four available for you, you may have gone and pitched all four. You got to know from all four. Does that mean your startup is bad? Not necessarily. You just need to find the right fit. So, of course, adding more options is important. And we don't want a bunch of strong VCs dominating the market and founders feeling like they have no leverage. Yeah. So certainly adding different kinds of VCs is important today. And tomorrow, adding verticalized VCs. So why don't we have health tech VCs in the region? We don't have ed tech VCs. We don't have very specific types of VCs. Everybody's pretty agnostic on sector side. I have to jump in here and tell you that I have a couple of them being cooked in the background, so I'll connect you with Excellent. them. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> to be fair, we have at least two fintech VCs in the region now, uh, funds, 
And there used to be a food tech fund in Kuwait. I don't know if it's still active. There are a couple corporate funds that are more sector specific, like Agility, for example, focuses a lot on logistics and their, their core businesses. But that's what corporates do, right? So corporates typically have synergistic angles to their thesis. Yeah. But we want to see more and we want to support more. So the third kind of fund we will be investing in are international funds that have a presence and investments here. When we go away from the region's funds or even deals, the more criteria is on those. So the international funds typically will be vertical specific funds because why would we bring more agnostic funds? It just doesn't make sense. It's going to cannibalize the efforts. And you'll hear me talk about this a lot is the thoughtful or the attempt to be thoughtful about balancing how we build the ecosystem. So both on the direct side and on the fund side. So yes, we want cross-pollination from international funds. We want their, their dry powder, their patient capital, potentially industry expertise. We want those things. And their portfolio companies potentially might be all healthcare companies, right? We would be happy to bring them in and roll out the red carpet for those startups. We want to be conscious that they're not cannibalizing the efforts of our local ecosystem. Because if we bring a payment gateway startup in, we roll out the red carpet, basically it'll crush the local payment gateway startups. So we have to be conscious of that. You hear governments very happily talk about tech transfer in emerging markets because they want the brand names to come in and check a box. Look, I mean, there is a place for that, but we have to be conscious of the fragile ecosystem we're trying to build from scratch from the bottom up that it may crush them. And so two angles of this to me is one, as the Dubai Future District Fund or as a government-based fund, I have to be very conscious of complementing and not cannibalizing the ecosystem myself. I don't want to cannibalize the efforts of the private VCs. And at the same time, why would I be doing direct if they're doing direct? And this is where the direct side of the story comes into play. So yeah. we do direct investments from pre-seed to series C, which is approximately five stages of investing. And we do this across two thematic pillars, future finance and future economies. Future finance is the 15 to 20 subsectors of fintech. It's reg tech, it's legal tech, and the finance side of Web3. And future economies, we intentionally define it less by the sectors that go in or don't, more about how we see the world economies changing between now and 2050, backtrack those 30 years into segments, and then we try to see what's missing from the ecosystem. So where can we put capital to try to put a stake in the ground on certain startups that are building things that the rest of the VCs may not be investing in as heavily or co-investing? So I think our direct checks will probably be half co-investments with the funds that we've invested in to add more capital on the stronger ones and half to get to gap fill to specifically in future tech, deep tech, which also means that we need to bring that kind of talent to the region. And luckily for every geopolitical thing happening around the world, Dubai seems to benefit from it and get an influx of, of this kind of STEM talent keeps coming in here. So over time, our direct tickets will move to slightly longer return windows. So today in our first year, the ones that we're announcing, you'll see them as mostly software, B2B, and across these themes, but not really deep tech. And that's because we're conscious of the optics involved here. Our stakeholders, everybody looking, is going to see, okay, are you investing in something that's going to have a 7 to 10-year return window, similar to private VCs? So today, yes, that's how we invest. With a deep tech lens, so is it going to impact 100 million people? Is it going to have a double bottom line? Is it following you know, SDGs? You know, these kinds of things are the secondary thing that we look at besides profit. And so we wouldn't invest in your ho-hum, you know, sort of everyday startup that, you know, is happening in the market. We're looking for things that are going to actually create outsized impact on the region, uh, whether that's, you know, the labor workforce and how their severance is calculated and, and paid out and managed. We, that's one of the investments we did. 
or uh, a secondaries platform that's going to unlock liquidity in the venture capital market for the entire ecosystem. It's another one we did. So these kinds of things. Now, once we load up one or two years worth of that lower hanging fruit, seven to 10 year return horizon, and enough funds in our portfolio that are covering the agnostic investing in the region, then we're going to shift to phase two of our direct, which is a 10 to 15 year return horizon. That's where we're going to start to employ patient capital. We can wait longer than the private VCs. So we'll start to do something that might be a little bit longer R&D, a higher CapEx involvement in the, the startup of their that company. So we'll go into the 10 to 15 year, year return horizon once we cover the early stage first, the 7 to 10 year. Then we will move into a 15 to 20 year return horizon as time goes on. So Sharif... We have botched the script entirely, and I, I'm just enjoying that. Sorry. We have to round it off. We tend to try and stick around 30 minutes, and now we're at 40. <laughs> so before we go to the quickfire round, I'd love to ask you, you know, because we've had some conversations before where you've also commented on the LP landscape, and you've also, you know, did a couple of comments uh, uh, throughout this talk here. And I'd love to just hear, it's two-part. One, we have in Europe, VCs that think that I can fly into Dubai or wherever in the MENA region in, in the more wealthy areas and then raise capital for my fund and go back rich to Europe. So that would be one question. How true slash completely false is that? And then the other is also if you would give us a broader commentary, because now we've heard how you think about developing Dubai and the whole ecosystem there. But I'd love to hear how do you see the rest of the LP ecosystem thinking about developing the market and or, or are they more like um you know the ones that are in it for the quick buck and don't really understand bc and the long game and so on to answer the first question and, and you'll probably get me in a little trouble here so i'm going to be careful but <laughs> number one i want to continue encouraging international vcs to come take a look to make spot investments maybe it's not part of their core you know it's a little bit out of mandate but you know every fund has a 10 to 20 percent out of mandate allowance we're very happy to see some of the best fund names starting to dabble in the region. But they need to partner. It's, it's the same thing as the sort of Web 3.0 conversation. They need to start to talk and get to know the local ecosystem first, understand the context that they're investing in, have 20 or 30 VC friends around the table with them to talk about the potential deals they're looking at. Because when they do it in a vacuum, and this has already happened a couple times to some big names, they get burned because they don't know the valuations here They're corrupting the, the market, causing a little bit of inflation over the 2020 to 2022 period. And sometimes, in some cases, they themselves have gotten burned from a deal that they've done because they didn't have the context of the region or that country very rehearsed. So yeah. I don't want to discourage them from coming, but there's a right way to do it. I'm happy they're doing it. I hope they continue to do it. But they should really get in, involved in the ecosystems, local uh, players, or take time to study it first. Otherwise, it's very hard to parachute in, as you mentioned, and, and just do it from the outside. Every market is quite different, and the challenges they face are super unique to those countries. So that's number one. Luckily, we have seen probably five of the top 10 tier one VCs already playing in the market, which is amazing, amazing. It just happened over the last couple of years, and I hope it continues with a stronger presence. You know, have a couple scouts on the ground. You know, have a couple venture partners on the ground who are from the ecosystem. They will still feed it up to you, but at least you get context, local context along with it. Now, on the second part, I think on the LP thing, this is a big, big issue of concern for me personally. It's why I took a pause myself from the previous fund, because I thought we had a major issue on the LP uh, landscape. When I did our first fund, we had four sovereign funds in that fund, which was a 2017 vintage. Those funds that invested in us didn't even exist before that year. Actually, we had to wait for them to set up to invest in us. 
Now, we were very happy that happened. But by the time we were you know, coming around to 2020, 2021, two or three of those four were gone. They did it once and they stopped. So there was a bit of a regression. Now, the number of them in the region was, you can count on one hand. During the pandemic, there were a few very powerful, very big new LPs that came on the scene, thankfully. Two from Abu Dhabi and two from Saudi. Very big pockets, deep dry powder behind it, and pushing really hard. So that's been amazing. But to have a healthy ecosystem, VCs need, again, optionality from LPs to raise from. And understandably so, these first, mostly government, basically government-backed fund of funds, have a development mandate. Rightly so. I mean, why else are they doing it? They need to do that for development. The financially driven uh, sovereign fund pockets across these countries typically look outside the region for diversification or because they have the world as their oyster, they can go pick the best funds in the world or best startups in the world. Great. Also great. But we're trying to build the local ecosystem. So we need LPs whose mandate is to invest in these countries, which is few and far between. So you might have, I think today we have five or six, maybe seven government-backed fund of funds investing in the region. That's their mandate. Now it's not evenly distributed as well. So similar to the European or U.S. development funds who have a geographic mandate of what's in scope and what's not, those funds are very healthy for MENA. The European uh, U.S. development funds are very healthy for MENA, but the GCC is not typically part of their mandate. So we're breaking the MENA region into two. There's the non-GCC and the GCC. The non-GCC, yeah. as you guys know, is North Africa and Levant. Yeah. Those development funds will cover all the, Africa all the way to Southeast Asia, even Central, the Caucasus, Central Eurasia. They cover all of that, but they don't cover GCC. And most of the new LPs that emerged in the region are in the GCC. So we have an imbalance of capital. And if you're a MENA-wide fund, which is most funds have to be MENA-wide because there's just every country has merit and is lacking certain things too. So to have a diversified fund, you need to cover the region. Those funds were having a hard time and are having a hard time raising from LPs because either they raise from the development funds and they skip GCC, which is what you've seen in Egypt, which is what you've seen in Jordan and Morocco, or they want to include GCC so they can't raise from the development funds and they have to go after the GCC fund of funds, Saudi, Emirates, Jordan had one. These are also, in a way, development funds that have different kinds of strings attached to their deployment. So all in all, top line looks very healthy, looks great. Everything's you know, up and to the right. But when you drill down underneath it, it's not evenly distributed. And so that's something we all collectively have to work on solving. Yeah. I don't know, you know when it will be solved or how it will be solved, but I'd like to see more endowments and pensions investing in funds. Like in the U.S., the, the most of the capital in the U.S. going into VCs is from endowments and pensions. There's an asset allocation recommendation by Yale. So Yale is the number one sort of endowment investor. And their recommendation many years ago, and there's a common known in the finance world, is 3 to 5% goes to alternative. We are way past that now. The recommendation for Yale is 15 to 20%. And their own allocation into venture capital specifically, not just alternative, is 22%. So hmm. everybody's moved along thinking in, in terms of asset allocation, this much capital should go to alternatives and this much should go to venture capital. We have not caught up to that yet. If you think of it as a percentage of GDP in the U.S., we are already something like $16 billion behind in MENA from the yeah. opportunity at hand. It's incredibly interesting to hear because with that last specific point, you know, 
we are at the exact same place in Europe, right? <laughs> so we all are playing catch up on, on getting institutional capital to allocate to VC. But Mustafa, I'll let you uh, take us to the quick fire now. So Sharif, we, we normally love to end our episodes with the quick fire round, quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds. I'm ready. Fire okay. away. In the MENA region, what exactly excites you the most that other people do not really feel excited about? That's a Peter Thiel type of question. So <laughs> I think the obvious to me, which may not be so obvious to others, is that startups and the venture capital sort of ecosystem are the most effective deployment of capital and way to make change in society. And I think people are looking at it from maybe some of the merits of it, but not that core merit, which is if you do things that are meaningful, if you solve a problem for millions of people, it will really change the trajectory of the entire society. And I really believe that. I believe 90% of net new jobs are created from SMEs and startups. If that can happen in a mature economy, of course, something like that could happen in like sort of emerging markets. So for me, this is all about the sort of outsized impact that we can have through creating these startups. Not every startup you see is doing that. Not every VC is thinking that way. But really, to me, that's the value we need to unlock. Awesome. So what are your top three trends in the region that you see currently? Uh, well, fintech is predominantly the, the number one sort of eating everything around it. I mean, every investor jumps on fintechs like without even looking. Fintech founders are, are all migrating towards starting fintechs. There's some merit in it, for sure. Even more interesting would be embedded finance, which is using the tools and, and models that we know in fintech and taking them to non-finance industries. So sassifying things or taking a take rate on GMV and other areas, GTV and other areas, and bringing that to other industries would be very interesting. But number one trend for sure, predominantly fintech, everything is fintech. And that's going to come to a halt at some point when the music stops and people realize you cannot build a derivative on top of a derivative on top of a derivative and make any margin at all at the end of the day. If you're not the tech stack that's deriving the, the bulk of value, the music will stop at some point because the unit economics are not going to be there and the regulatory environments are very challenging and very expensive to navigate. Uh, number two or three, I would say we still are in a phase of the ecosystem. Nothing wrong with it, but we're still in a phase where everyone's going after the you know last mile delivery, food delivery, groceries delivery, e-commerce, just basic e-commerce. And I don't think we're quite past that stage yet, but we would like to see people attacking more important industries you know, than just that and solving areas, you know, for example, and, and niche things like within health tech, are we even doing something beyond doctor booking apps or portals? Is anyone doing anything beyond that, right? In fintech even, are we doing anything beyond just payments or wallets or neobanks or remittance? We do see a few here and there, but, but certainly founders shy away from it. Investors tend to shy away from it. They're trying to balance their portfolios and think, what's the fastest return I can get? From a sector investment point of view, I think those are the, the biggest trends that we see. Last but not least, uh, what can we expect in the future from you, Sharif? Well, our fund has a lot of very ambitious plans ahead. Number one, we are working on increasing the capital base of the fund. As I mentioned earlier, structured as an evergreen fund, but we pay carry. So uh, the team is performance uh, incentivized, which is, I think, extremely unique globally. So evergreen structure with carry is already hard to do, but doing that in early stage venture capital, I don't think it exists, but you know, somebody can prove me wrong. Dubai spirit behind the fund is that we're not going to just do what everybody else is doing. We're going to try to push the envelope. It's why we care a lot about providing liquidity within those 10 years through secondaries, through other models. Now, we are uh, aiming to increase the capital base of the fund from the 200 million anchor amount that we have today to a billion dollars within the next couple of years. 
So that is trying to create a long-term sustainable fund program for Dubai as venture ecosystem. We also have a few kind of fun things we want to work on. So one, we want to be able to serve different segments of the investment community. So on the one level, we're serving the government entities. We're another level, we might serve UAE private sector or corporates and family offices. And on the third level, which I find very exciting, next year, we're going to be launching a tokenization platform so that qualified retail investors like you and I want to put $50,000 of our own money on the Dubai Venture Index. And the reason I call it an index is because we're going to be hopefully investing in all the best funds across the region. Uh, we're going to be investing in all the best direct startups as well. So you can be a part of all of that with your tiny little check. And the easiest way to sort of manage 10 to 15,000 individuals transparently and properly is a tokenization platform. Now, this is a security token, not a utility token. So this security token mimics a share of the fund based on the, a NAV that's calculated. So when we do that, we'll have sort of three tiers of potential investors or shareholders in the fund. We have our government entities, we have the private sector itself, and then we have individuals as well. So everybody can partake. This is almost like a proxy for in 10 to 15 years from now, when the fund is actually swimming in carry, hopefully we will list the fund on the public market. So every share is actually liquid and it's a freely changing public fund. I mean, that's the goal. It's amazing that you've brought great energy here and I am sure that we're going to see a <laughs> lot you. more coming from the Dubai Future District Fund than, uh, than you've even managed to uh, elude to us here. Sharif, thanks so much for joining us today at the European VC. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you guys so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Sharif. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love our show, share it with your friends and join us in the EUVC community syndicates at theeuropeanvc.com. Want to be on top of who the best up-and-coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the know.